0: I'm Dr. Stephanie Martin, Maternal Fetal Medicine Specialist and Medical Director at Clinical Concepts in Obstetrics. Today's podcast will be talking about peripartum cardiomyopathy management principles. So what is peripartum cardiomyopathy? It's more than just heart failure. It's the development of heart failure within the last month of pregnancy or five months postpartum. Now, it's important to recognize that peripartum cardiomyopathy is a diagnosis of exclusion. That means you can't find any other identifiable cause for heart failure. It's not because she had an MI. It's not because she has sepsis or preeclampsia. There's no other identifiable cause for the heart failure. And the patient should have no recognizable cardiac disease before pregnancy. Now, heart failure is not necessarily the same thing as pulmonary edema, although pulmonary edema can absolutely develop in the setting of heart failure. We're talking about a problem with the heart muscle that leads to pump failure. Remember, the heart is essentially a pump. It's a muscular pump. And if that muscle is not functioning properly, then you can get an overflow of fluid that represents that pump failure. Now, cardiomyopathy can be dilated or obstructive. And in this case, we're talking about a dilated cardiomyopathy. We're not talking about a thickened heart muscle. We're talking about a weak, limp heart muscle that allows that ventricle to enlarge in size, dilate, a dilated left ventricle. So the muscle is weak, the, and as a result, it stretches out and the ventricle becomes enlarged. There's two types of ventricular dysfunction when we talk about this. Now, often in obstetrics, when we say someone has cardiomyopathy, it's just assumed that we're talking about systolic dysfunction and a dilated cardiomyopathy. But that's not always the case. In the case of peripartum cardiomyopathy, that's exactly what we're dealing with. Systolic dysfunction is when you have a pump problem. The The muscle is weak, and so you have problems with flow, uh, getting the flow to move forward. Now, diastolic dysfunction is different. That's a filling problem. This typically happens in patients that are hypertensive or obese, and that muscle is having to work against great resistance for a very long period of time. And in response, the muscle enlargens and thickens. And when that happens, you end up getting a narrower, smaller ventricular cavity because the muscle gets so thick that it impinges on that ventricular cavity. So the the ventricle doesn't fill very well. And as a result, any extra fluid can overflow backwards into the lungs. So systolic dysfunction is weakened, thinned muscle, dilated ventricle. Diastolic dysfunction is thickened muscle, decreased filling space in that left ventricle that can lead to overflow. Now, the only way to diagnose a cardiomyopathy is with an echocardiogram. Now, you can suspect that someone has cardiomyopathy primarily because they have issues with pulmonary edema, or some dysrhythmia, like maybe atrial fibrillation or ventricular arrhythmias that might make you suspect a cardiomyopathy. But the bottom line is the only way that you will know if your patient has cardiomyopathy is to do an echocardiogram. So what do we see on echo that makes us uh, uh, believe that the patient has cardiomyopathy? Well, first, you have a decreased ejection fraction. Typically, it's less than 45%. And what does that mean? Well, the ejection fraction is telling you how well the heart is pumping out the blood that's contained in the ventricle. So, if the ventricle gets filled, the heart is going to pump out in systole, it's going to pump out a portion of that blood that's in the ventricle. It's not going to completely empty the ventricle. That would be an ejection fraction of 100%, but it's going to eject out most. So, somewhere around, you know, 45 to let's say 70%. So, in that, you know, most of the time when you do an ejection fraction, on a patient that's normal, you're going to see in the 50s, 60s range, okay? But if the ejection fraction gets less than 45%, you start seeing ejection fractions of the 20s, 30s, and low 40s, the the ventricle's not emptying very well. We also look at a decreased shortening fraction, and that tells you how well the muscle is contracting. How well is the muscle shortening how, how effectively is it shortening? We want to see that shortening fractioning above 30%, but don't worry too much about those numbers. Lastly, we look at the size of the left ventricle. So once the heart is pumped out blood in and, and systole, and then at, it fills in diastole, at the end of diastole, we measure the size of the left, left ventricle. And the larger it is at the end of diastole, the less well it's emptying and performing. That's part of the dilated cardiomyopathy. So it gets dilated. And at the end of diastole, when it's done filling, we measure and say, how big is it? And the bigger it is, the worse the dilation and the worse the cardiomyopathy. Now, once you confirm the diagnosis, management is all about maximizing cardiac output. Now, if you've listened to me talk before, you know I love this formula. Cardiac output equals heart rate times stroke volume. Now this time we're gonna focus a lot more on stroke volume. So if cardiac output is going down, the heart has two ways to increase at the cardiac output. One is by increasing the heart rate, that's through tachycardia, and the second is by increasing stroke volume. Now in this case, we have a problem primarily with stroke volume because the muscle of the heart is weak, so it's not pumping very well. So the amount of volume that goes out with each stroke of the heart is decreased. So how do we improve stroke volume? So if we dive deeper into that formula, stroke volume is controlled by three things. Preload, afterload, and contractility. Now, this is the point where many of you are shutting down. You're like, oh my gosh, she's talking about preload and afterload. I'm done. Count me out. Hang in there. Don't get overwhelmed. Let's talk about what each of these terms mean. This, it's not as difficult as you might think. So what is preload? preload is the volume that's being presented to the heart to pump. So when the heart circulates blood around, then blood returns back to the heart. That fluid that's coming back to the heart, that's what the heart has to deal with. It's got to compensate for this somehow and pump it out. That's the preload. Now, the right side of the heart has its own preload, and the left side of the heart has its own preload. Now, afterload. What is afterload? This is the resistance that the heart is pumping against that's what the heart has to work against to get blood flowing through the body now on the left side of the heart the afterload is called the systemic vascular resistance the blood pressure is another way to assess what the afterload is and of course the right side of the heart has its own afterload and the left side of the heart has its own afterload with the setting of cardiomyopathy, we're primarily talking about preload and afterload to the left side of the heart, since this is left ventricular systolic dysfunction that we're referring to. So we've talked about preload, which which is the amount of blood that the heart has to pump, afterload, the resistance that the heart has to pump against, and then the last thing that controls stroke volume is contractility, and that's the inherent strength of the heart muscle. How well is the heart muscle actually contracting? So when you're managing a patient that has cardiomyopathy, peripartum cardiomyopathy, we've got three key management principles. We're going to be addressing each one of these components that impact stroke volume. So we're going to address preload, we're going to reduce afterload, and we're going to improve contractility. And through that, we're going to improve try to maximize the patient's stroke volume. And ultimately, that will improve and maximize cardiac output. So how do we manage preload? So remember, this is the amount of fluid, the volume that's p- being presented to the heart to pump out to the circulation. So how do we control fluid in anybody? First, we're going to fluid restrict. We're going to make sure the patient's not taking in too much fluid. And we're going to monitor those eyes and O's very, very carefully. But ultimately... For most patients, it's going to require diuretics. For many of us, that's furosemide, but it doesn't really matter. Diuretics are the way that we're going to control the amount of fluid coming into the heart. If there's too much fluid and the heart can't keep up, we've got to get rid of some of that fluid, and we do that through diuretics. Very simple. Now, how about afterload? So afterload is the resistance that the heart has to work against. Remember, we talked about the afterload to the left side of the heart is the systemic vascular resistance or the blood pressure. Higher afterload, higher blood pressures, higher vascular resistance translates to harder work for a weakened heart. Think about trying to press the gas pedal when you've got your emergency brake on. The the car might go a little bit, but it's really working hard. It doesn't want to work that hard. Let's let up on that emergency brake. Let's decrease that resistance and allow the car to go. Let's decrease the resistance against the heart and allow it to pump more easily. So how do we do that? We control blood pressure. We use antihypertensive medications, and it just so happens that the best antihypertensives we use in this situation are vasodilators. We're going to dilate the blood vessels, decrease the vascular resistance, so that the heart has to uh, doesn't have to work quite as hard. So we've reduced preload with diuretics. We've reduced afterload with vasodilators. Now we're going to improve contractility. Remember, contractility is the inherent strength of the muscle of the heart. And with peripartum cardiomyopathy, this is the primary problem. This is the root of the problem. For some reason, the heart muscle has weakened. The way we improve contractility is to give inotropes like digoxin. And digoxin works to directly improve contractility in the heart. Now, in some patients, what you'll see is that when you reduce preload, you get rid of all the extra fluid that the heart has to do. So it has to pump less. You improve afterload. You reduce the blood pressure and vasodilate so that the heart doesn't have to work nearly as hard. That by itself will improve cardiac output. And for some patients, that's enough. Just those two things, reducing preload and afterload, will, reduce the, will improve the car- contractility just enough that their cardiac output will improve, their injection fraction will improve. But some patients are going to require digoxin to make that muscle work more effectively. Now, what about beta blockers? You remember our formula is cardiac, outrate, cardiac output equals heart rate times stroke volume. So we've worked on stroke volume with preload reduction, afterload reduction, and improving contra- contractility, but what about the heart rate? Now, initially, as the cardiac output is decreasing because the stroke volume is going down so acutely, heart rate is the compensatory mechanism. So the heart is beating faster to try and increase cardiac output. So we don't want to block that initially. So when, in patients with acute scenarios, we don't want to block the heart rate. But later on, later on in their course, at some point, it may be appropriate to block the heart rate or control the heart rate somewhat to improve the muscle work and decrease the amount of work that the heart actually has to do. But acutely, that may be their compensatory mechanism. That may be, may be what is maintaining cardiac output until we can improve stroke volume. So you don't want to just give a beta blocker to attack a tachycardic patient, especially with cardiomyopathy. Now, remember, these patients are also often in pulmonary edema. This is cardiogenic pulmonary edema, meaning the pulmonary edema developed because the heart could not handle all the fluids it was required to pump, and we have overflow into the lungs. Cardiogenic, hydrostatic pulmonary edema. Non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema, that the heart's working fine, but the vessels are leaky, and so the fluid just leaks out just like a sieve. This is cardiogenic pulmonary edema. And so in addition to all these things we've been talking about, they're going to get supplemental O2 and whatever is necessary to try and improve their pulmonary function, sitting them up in bed, uh, monitoring their pulse ox, et cetera. Now, the only real differences in treatment of peripartum cardiomyopathy versus uh, non-pregnant patient cardiomyopathy is related to afterload reduction. And how did we reduce afterload? We did that with vasodilators. But in the non-pregnant patient population, ACE inhibitors and ACE receptor blockers are commonly used as the medication of choice to reduce afterload. And of course, we're not going to use these in pregnancy. They're contraindicated. So we're generally going to be avoiding ACE inhibitors and ACE receptor blockers. And we're going to be using other vasodilators to try and reduce afterload. I hope that this review has helped you understand that the three key management principles for management of peripartum cardiomyopathy are reducing preload, reducing afterload, improving contractility. And those three things will improve stroke volume, which will result in improvement in cardiac output. Until next time.